This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we're going to feature interviews that were collected, conducted by Ryan Fairfield and myself, Tony Lupo, for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. The um, focus of this podcast is not going to be on world leaders or events that led to World War II. It's not going to be about general strategy. It's going to be about the everyday GI soldiers and their experience. Welcome to our journey. Welcome to the Warrior Next Door podcast. I'm Ryan Fairfield. And I'm Tony Lupo. And this is episode two of a four-part series on Mr. Allen Sr.'s World War II experiences uh, as a B-24 waste gunner. In episode number one, we learned all about how he got involved in the military and his training. And uh, he's just made the trip across the Atlantic Ocean and landed into England here. So we'll pick back up where we left off, and we'll be hearing more about his first missions in this episode. Okay, so uh, the next clip that Ryan's queuing up uh, is going to talk about not only do they do they have a he's going to be assigned a crew uh, and a plane. So this 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 he's finally going to understand you know what he's going to be flying in after all of this training, and he's still stateside. And timing wise, we're looking at uh, in the fall of 1944. This would have been around September, October 1944 after D Day. The Allies are marching uh, west. Uh, they finally have broken out from the beachhead after Operation Cobra, for those history buffs who want to look this up. And uh, and he's still being trained. Training air crews was uh, a big deal, and it took a lot of time. And now he's finally going to meet his crew and, and see what he's going to be flying in. Well, first let me say that we flew overseas. We picked up a brand-new B-24 and flew, well, we picked it up at Topeka, Kansas, and flew it to Grenier Field, New Hampshire. And then on our way overseas, we flew to Goose Bay, Labrador, Bluey West, Newfoundland, and then from there to Iceland. And because of the weather, we spent two glorious weeks in Iceland and then flew on to Wales. Okay, just a, a brief interjection here. I, I read on the worldwide interwebs from various sources that when uh, these pilots, when these crews would pick up these new planes, and specifically the story I have is from B-24s, that they smelled like a new car. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about this minute, the, uh, this, this moment in time, because I think we in a contemporary society can overlook this significantly, especially with the amount of change that we're used to dealing with. So here's this guy from upstate New York. He grew up in a town of about 6,000 people, as you hear later. He wants to join the war effort. He does. He wants to be a pilot, doesn't make it through the program, and becomes a waste gunner. And now he finds out he's a waste gunner on a B-24. Now, you know, in, in, in the 1930s and 1940s, air travel was very rare. And in fact, you, you wouldn't think of it nowadays, but there were people who idolized these barnstormers, these pilots like, uh, like uh, Charles Lindbergh. And so now he's standing in front of the B-24. Wiley Post, for instance. Wiley Post, exactly. He's standing in front of the B-24. It's brand spanking new. A brand spanking new B-24. He's got his crew. He's going to waste gunner. He finally knows all this stuff. And uh, let me just spend um, a minute telling you about this B-24. A lot of people, when they think about the war in Europe, the bomber war, they think of the B-17. But what's not known, I think, by a lot of people is that the B-24 was produced in significantly more numbers than uh, the B-17. So 
By the end of the war, there would be 12,731 B-17s produced, which is a hell of a lot of planes. Uh, but by that same period, there'd be 18,482 B-24s. Now, when you start talking about B-24s and B-17s, it's a Ford versus Chevy things for the car people. Absolutely. Right? And I, I remember having conversations with Alan about that at the squadron and talking about, and he was a vehement defender of the B-24 and was actually a little, you know, it was he was testy about it. You know, he had a lot of pride and that B-24, and he could rattle off all the ways it was much better than the B-17. And let's let's share a few of those. So without hard numbers, the B-24 could fly uh, farther. It could fly faster because of the Davis wing that it used, which uh, had What's a... The, can you explain the Davis wing? Yeah, so the Davis wing was... So the, the, the B-24 design was designed by a uh, consolidated aircraft company, which made... Uh, seaplanes, the, like the Clippers, the Clippers, right? Yeah. So, so if you look at a picture of a B twenty four, it it's very boxy looking because they were designed to to land in water with uh with the pontoons and whatnot, and the Davis wing would sit on top of of the fuselage, not on below it or in the middle, like in in the B seventeen, to give the the engines a little bit of uh, a purchase above the water. Um, so they converted, so you can see this seaplane. DNA in this long range bomber. Mm-hmm. And that's something else that a seaplane needs, right? Is mm-hmm. long range because you're flying usually transoceanic routes. So, um, and, and one more thing about the B 17 in terms of how it, not the B 17, the B 24 in terms of how it looked is the Germans, uh, called it the furniture wagon <laughs> because if it's, it's not a very good looking aircraft. And because of that, the B 24 is often maligned compared to the B 17. But well, it just doesn't have that sleek art deco no. look that the B 17 had. Absolutely. You know? I mean, if you're going to make a poster of American War Might in 1939, you're putting a B 17 on it. I mean, the B 17, when it's sitting there, looks regal and looks fast. Yes. And the B 24 looks like a it furniture could haul wagon, a lot of stuff, you know? <laughs> right. Which you could. Yeah. And so some of the advantages of the B 24 is it could fly uh, uh, faster and farther and have a heavier bomb load. And we're talking faster. It was only with a full bomb load, some people would estimate maybe 10, 15 miles an hour faster. And people are thinking, that's pretty slow. I can run faster than that. But that additional 10 miles an hour allowed a B-24 to take off later than a B-17, fly the same distance uh, to bomb a target, and the B-24s could already be back on the ground before the B-17s even got back to the English shore. That That's an interesting stat there to think about that. I never knew that. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you think about these missions that these guys are on in, the, in Europe. I mean, let alone the Pacific Theater. But in Europe, they're flying, you know, eight-hour, nine-hour long missions. And you're traveling 10 to 15 miles per hour faster. Mm-hmm. You're going to travel a total of 100 miles total, total quicker you know, than, than everybody else. So on the B-17. So yeah, it's interesting. You know, I hadn't realized that stuff. Well, and there's a few more things. Let's get in the Ford Chevy thing just a little bit more. So, um, (laughs) there were also, there was also this argument about survivability. There is this common, uh, narrative uh, back in the forties, even today that the B-17 was more survivable. And there's a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth between the B-24 and B-17 crews over this. Uh, they, the B-24 crews obviously don't believe that's entirely true at all. And in fact, some of the earlier uh, accounts, because the B-17 was the first heavy bomber that made it in European theater uh, in 19, late 1942, uh, mid-1942, and then 43, 
So it got a lot of press and, and people like Andy Rooney were, uh, had a chance to fly on, on like planes like the B-17 and they'd come back to the States and they would report that, Hey, I'm Andy Rooney, Andy Rooney. I was just over there. And if I had to fly in anything, it'd be a B-17. Well, the dirty little secret is he never flew in a B-24. <laughs> I mean, so he can't, he couldn't really know the difference between the two planes. And another interesting thing about the survivability, and this, our, our science background is going to come in here a little bit, we geek out on this kind of thing, is that there was a study done on B-17s that had survived horrific battle damage. And for those students of history, and if you're not, we say, go, go see Mr. or Mrs. Google and check it out. You'll see tails like blown to hell and, yeah. and wing spars with holes in them. And, and tail sections where, uh, you know, ME-109s have crashed into them. Absolutely. You know, and they still survived if they got back. So, so you think about the publicity associated with that and also the perception of survivability. So what the, uh, the, the, the army did was they said, well, we want to, look at all these holes in the plane and uh, from these planes that survived. And then we want to go back to the factories and then beef up these areas to make the plane more survivable. And um, some nerdy statistician looked at what they were doing and said, you guys got this completely backwards. These are the planes that survived the damage. Th this is the place where you don't need to beef it up because even though they've been shot to heck in certain areas, they still made it back. You need to find out, you need to look in the graveyard. You need to find out of planes that crashed where they were hit. So it's just a little interesting story about the the perception versus the reality between the B-17 and B-24. So I'll just say this. You talked about, you know, the fact that the heritage of the B-24 lies in the seaplanes, you know, the Pan Am Clippers, that sort of thing, the high wing planes with the floats and the bows as they're the bottom of, you know, the bow of a boat as the bottom of the plane. Mm -hmm. One of the documentaries I remember watching on PBS, uh, I think it was PBS, was about the Tulsa American, the B-24 produced out of the Douglas plant here in Tulsa. And um, it was one of the last planes that went off the line. It might have been the last plane that went off the line. And everyone signed the inside of the fuselage. And so this crew that got this plane, I think they were in the, the European theater. I'm not sure. Maybe. I, I think they were 15th Air Force in the Mediterranean They're, theater. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, this that plane ended up crashing in into the Mediterranean, and um, they did a study on. They found that crash. They found it, um, and then they also found another crash nearby. I think it was a B seventeen, or um, and they noted how mangled and just destroyed the Tulsa American was. I mean, horrific crash. Um, and and it wasn't because they plowed in going you know at a ninety degree angle at high rate of speed. They actually came in to come in and land at this island. They were wounded, you know, but they hit the water. And this plane, who has his heritage as a seaplane, broke right at, at right about where the, the wing connects in the whole front nose of the aircraft, and the tail broke off. So the plane completely came apart when it hit the water. And that was a design flaw that who would have known? Just like you were talking about the statisticians saying, you need to go find the planes that didn't make it back. That's, that's, a, yeah. that's a great example of us not knowing this until recently that that was something that could happen to these planes. Yeah, and then the final irony is that uh, it, it didn't handle ditching in the water well, and it was designed to be a initially a long-range seaplane. And and where were they, were they deployed? They were deployed crossing the English Channel, which isn't that big of a body of water, but primarily the Pacific Theater. Absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, we'll say a few more things about the B-17 and B-24 before we move on at the interview. But but that that's a great point, Ryan, is 
by late 1943, the B-17s were completely, for the most part, stripped out of the Pacific Theater. The B-24s had, had longer ranges. They were more versatile. There were over 50 different variants of the B-24 that were produced. And many of them were produced in reconnaissance roles, in uh, 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 cargo carrying roles. In fact, uh, no, no less a person than Winston Churchill himself is, is widely uh, noted as being the person who named the B-24 the Liberator. He had his own personal B-24, and he called it the Commando. So you think he disagreed with Andy Rooney? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, not, yeah, well, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm more on Winston Churchill's side than Andy Rooney's on this one. That He is an alpha male with an alpha male uh, name for <laughs> an alpha male type of uh, B-24. Personally, I, I think both aircraft served very well during the war. I think that the aesthetics of the B-17 are amazing. If I had to put one in my garage or in my driveway, it would be that. But if I had, if I needed a Swiss Army knife bomber for a war, I'd probably go with the B-24. Yeah, I think you're right. So he's in England. And the next clip that Ryan's going to cue up is uh, him knowing that not only is he going to be fighting in England in a B-24 as a waste gunner, and this would have been um, around January of 1945. Correct. Right? Yeah. But now he's going to understand or know specifically which squadron he's a part of, where his base is going to be, what that's going to be like. So he's going to, he's being introduced to his new home until the war ends. And, and so I just want to sidebar on that. So he is arriving in January 45. When was he enlisted? Yeah, he enlisted in um, March. Almost a year before. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's my point. Absolutely. Look how long it took, even at the height of World War II, when we had all of our training protocols in place and we were being as efficient as possible with it. Even then, it took 10 months to get a guy enlisted and in a plane ready to bomb. And let me add something more to that. So he, he would have been in a bomber with nine other men. So when you hear about bomber losses, when you hear that they lost, you know, 36 planes on a raid, you might think, well, it's just 36 planes, right? But it's, it's 360, 360 men, men who took, uh, for the waste yeah. gunner, took almost a year to go through boot to training. And that doesn't include the pilots, the co-pilots, the bombardier, the navigator. It's a significant resource it, that they were losing. It absolutely is. And I don't want, we don't want to talk about people as resources, but what, what I do want to say is when you are prosecuting a war, um, there are certain losses that are more difficult to make up for than others. Mm -hmm. And in the case of these air crews earlier in the war, when they were really struggling, it was, it was alarming because of these sort of things we're talking about. You don't just give a guy a machine gun, a 50 caliber, and put him in a waste and shoot things. There's a lot involved in training these guys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, search and rescue, survival, all this stuff. It's not just the things that you think when they're a waste gunner. There's other things about being on a plane you have to know as well. Another supply base for a few days, and we were assigned to the 446 Bomb Group in uh, Bungay, Norwich, which is East Angula, sort of northeast from London. It was the usual barracks uh, with the, the, the cots, and what was different from the barracks in the States, they had three little charcoal stoves and the mattresses instead of being all one piece were, were they were three different separate 
pieces and they would be called them biscuits and they were always separating while you slept and you sagged down in between the, the biscuits. But it was fine. It, it, it wasn't a hardship at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tony and I were talking about this uh, before we started the podcast or anything. Um, maybe somebody out there can explain to us, you know, why things had to be so difficult for, you know, at times, you know, and they, some, it's almost like they want to just, they want to temper these guys by not making them too comfortable, you know? <laughs> so you have these three part mattresses these guys have to sleep on. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe there was some practicality of it with storage where they could just stack these up rather than having these six foot long mattresses or something. But um, we just had to laugh about that, you know, nothing earth shaking, you know, as far as observations, but yeah, we're thinking, you know, <laughs> the, the freaking Brits, right? I mean, it, it, so it, it, it's hard enough to come up with kit for specific things like mountain warfare. It, it, and then we're just talking about a bed and they, they even found a way to make that uncomfortable for their servicemen by breaking them into three pieces so that you sunk between the gaps. Now it's not any real serious hardship at all relative to, uh, what many of the other GIs were experiencing in, in foxholes and all that, but I don't know, it just kind of made us laugh. So I just want to make a point about this. Um, you know, one of the a great book that I was able to get through the the After the Battle series is this uh, Airfields of the Eighth Air Force Then and Now, and um, I'm a big <laughs> Then and Now sort of guy. I love being able to go to some of these places and standing exactly where they fought. So this this air base here was um, uh, near the town of Flixton, England. I may be mispronouncing that. Maybe it's pronounced Flighton. I don't. I don't know. But it was a, a bustling, huge air base here. Um, it was um, near the town of Norwich, which was the largest town nearby. And um, you know, as he describes here, it was. Uh, you know, he didn't have a lot of. Um, you know really uh you know vivid memories of the place it was a standard gi issue location and uh, if we ever get our uh, a video element of this podcast going that we'll display on youtube and stuff i'll put some pictures in showing the aerial view of the airfield then and what it looked like about 40 years later um but but anyway um you know these air bases were all over england i mean you look at a map of the airfields of just the eighth air force um, and, uh, it, it, it's just peppered across the, the, the whole country. And, uh, so the amount of material and resources, and can you imagine being a civilian back then being in the middle of, let's say a hundred air bases on your, and, and all of the bombers taking off every day, I would be a constant droning of engines. I think sun up, sundown days at a time, months at a time, years at a time. Anyway, just a little sidebar. Do you have anything you want to add there? Absolutely. When when Allen landed um, in 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 England and reported his air base, he would have seen these air bases everywhere. What he would have seen was thousands of planes, um, thousands of tanks. He would have seen a lot of equipment being ferried across to um, to the main to, to mainland Europe, where the battles were still occurring. Remember, this is around January forty five. So there's a bit of a pause in the action during the winter time. This would have been regrouping after the uh the battle in the ardennes the mm -hmm. battle of the bulge we right. would have been reconsolidating our lines we've been licking our wounds we'd have been resupplying and the bombers played and fighter bombers played a big role in keeping the enemy at bay 
while we had a chance to, to, to reconsolidate, reorganize, and get ready for the, the big spring offensive that everyone hoped would end the war. Now we're going to get into, you know, the missions, the, 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 the sort of things that he experienced uh, in warfare. So, so join us as he talks, uh, talks us through um, his experience in combat uh, during World War II. We arrived in England in January, and we started flying, I suppose, in uh, March. We only flew 10 missions, and the war ended up. I flew the last mission at the 8th Air Force, flew on April 25, 1945, to Salzburg, Germany. It was my second trip, or our second trip to Salzburg, which is in southern Germany, uh, border, bordering the Alps there. I think... This is something that struck me. You know, he he talks about being on the very last mission of the 446th to Salzburg. Um, I'm not sure how much Salzburg was attacked during the war, but I believe Salzburg is a UNESCO World Heritage Site today. Um, And from what I recall, um, one of the reasons why it is such a, a World Heritage Site is because of the lack of bomb damage from the war. Now, perhaps the targets were outside of the city, and that's why everything was preserved. But I have a, I mean, I'm, I, I'm confused about that. And if anyone out there can illuminate us or me more specifically on, on what the targets were there, and 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 how the city itself was able to retain, um, you know, its history. You know, that's where Mozart, you know, was born and 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 grew up and everything. So, yeah, I was, I, I did an interview with a Vietnam. Uh, war veteran who stayed in the military after the war and uh, got his degree in history using the GI Bill and stayed in the military and was actually part of a, a military organization that worked with UNESCO during the Persian Gulf conflicts to identify, pre-identify sites that had, you know, some sort of world heritage um, uh, uh, importance so that they would not be bombed using cruise missiles or whatnot. And it didn't really surprise me that, that we did that now, but it, it, I wonder if there was a similar group in World War II where they looked at some of these. I mean, look, if a lot of people who study World War II history might be familiar with Monte Cassino, the, the historic abbey in central Italy that was part of the German line and we absolutely, you know, blew the holy heck out of it. And it's been kind of controversial since then. I don't know how much in world, during World War II we paid attention to those things. And maybe there was a group, especially at this point in the war, that's like, you know, let's have some of these heritage sites available when we're done. Or maybe not. Maybe we just bombed everything. But I, I'm with you, Ron. I didn't mm-hmm. understand that either. Yeah. So the next uh, clip that we're going to talk about uh, are going to be talking about some of the typical mission objectives, and we're going to share that with you guys. Well, as the war was winding down, the Air Force uh, was asked to concentrate on transportation, which would be the trains, the transport, uh, the gasoline, synthetic gasoline, and airfields. So we don't have, or I don't have, the direct records of, of the type of bombs, 
that they used or the missions that they flew specifically for his airplane. We've interviewed some veterans uh, from World War II who were um, uh, part of the Strategic Air Command who kept diaries of that. And in Mm -hmm. in subsequent podcasts, we're going to share that with everybody. We don't have that with this first interview with Alan Sr. He may have had it. We didn't ask for it, whatever it was. But I do have this uh, 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 this website called aviationmuseum.net, and there is a diary that's published here from Kurt Varner uh, from the 446 Bomb Group. Now, he was there uh, prior to uh, Alan Sr. He was there during 42 and 43. And a lot of the missions that he describes in here had things like, yeah, here's one from July 6, 1944. The bomb load was three 2,000-pound general purpose bombs. Now you think about a bomb that weighs a ton, and there's three of these, and uh, and and the type of mission uh, that they were going after was a bridge span, right? And I think a, a big bomb like that would probably be good for bridges. Uh, you look at some of these other ones. The the uh, five days later on uh, in July, their mission they had 24 250 pound general purpose bombs, which would have been considered back then to be what we call cluster bombs today. Mm-hmm. And um, and this particular um, uh, bombing had to do with airfields and anti-personnel. So really all I wanted to do is stop and tape here is let you know that the B-24s were very versatile, and I'm sure the B-17s as well. But by this point in the war, we were going after infrastructure. It wasn't just putting incendiaries on cities and burning them down. Um, they had specific targets to try to basically starve the German army into submission. And uh, Al has some comments on the effectiveness on that, and we're going to play that clip right now. Which really, the way it turned out afterwards, if the United States or the Allies had concentrated on those targets, the war might have ended earlier because the railroads were rebuilt over the next few days and were in operation at night. But the, the bridges, the airfields, and particularly the oil. So this is a, a common uh, post-war critique of the Strategic Air Command's uh, uh, objectives, is that we spent too much time bombing cities and not enough time bombing infrastructure. And I think that's what Al's trying to convey here. And in fact, um, the head of the uh, the British Air Forces, his name, uh, his nickname was Bomber Harris, was highly criticized during and after the war as prosecuting the war in a far too brutal a fashion. Now, from my perspective, I don't know what that means because war is brutal in its nature. But Harris, he believed that you would break the will of the people by bombing the cities. Now, the irony is, is by the time the RAF in concert with the United States Air Force, had the ability to do that and really level cities, um, was a few years after the height of the Blitz when the Germans tried to do the same thing, and it failed. So why Bomber Harris felt like it would work when they could do it, but not have, but witness it not working, in fact, strengthening the resolve during the Blitz is still a bit of a mystery. Yeah, agreed. So what Alan Sr. is saying is, is by, by the time he entered the war, there was um, more of a clearer picture of the sort of things they should have been attacking to begin with. I, I got a statistic here I want to share with, with the listeners about 
the, the, the amount of bombs that we dropped in this effort. If we look at just the 8th Air Force, right, not the 15th, not the Med, not Bomber Command generally and what's going on in the Pacific, just the 8th Air Force. And if we look at the number of tons of bombs that were dropped just in December of 1944, just before Allen landed <laughs> in continent, the 8th Air Force dropped 389,119 tons of bombs. If you compare that tonnage to the amount that was dropped during the Blitz, the entire Blitz um, from all of 1944, the Germans dropped 9,151 tons. Okay, If you looked at the total tonnage of bombs that Nazi Germany dropped on the UK during the entire war, it amounts to about 74,000 tons. Mm -hmm. So in the entire war, the Germans were able to drop 74,000 tons of bombs on the UK. And yet in one month, one Air Force from the United States, that doesn't include the RAF, dropped 389,000 tons of bombs. That is absolutely staggering. It's obscene. <laughs> it, it, it really is. I, I mean, mean, the production of our, of our, of our infrastructure, the, the war machine that we built. Yeah. And, and not only that, but when you, you can't even fathom. I don't think the human brain. It was, I think it was Stalin who said, "If you kill a hundred people, it's a tragedy. If it's a million, it's it's a statistic." Your brain can't get around. I don't think my brain can get around the damage that is incurred and the effort involved in dropping three hundred eighty nine thousand tons of bombs. And, and what amazes me is how uh, Germany continued to function in some manner after all that. Yes, and in fact, in the next clip, um, Alan has something to say about that as well. They produced just as many airplanes at, in, when the war was ending as they did at the start of the war, some 8,000 units, but they didn't have fuel or pilots enough to fly them. Yeah, that's... <laughs> you know, um, uh, I, I mean, and, and that just goes to like, like we were just talking about, um, you know, the fact that, uh, um, they could still, you know, Albert Speer's machine, his war machine was still cranking out ordnance and, and, and weapons of war, but they just didn't have the training in place to train the pilots. They didn't have enough young fighting men that could come in and fly these ME-262s and, and these wonder weapons that they had created. A a absolutely. And that, I can remember when I was a young man and, and really interested in World War II history and, and reading about various elements of it, that was one of the things that really surprised me. Uh, you, I would watch or read uh, various uh, documentaries, and you'd see all these pictures or video footage of all these bombed-out towns and, and these trains blowing up. And then, uh, you know, you, you hear the statistic and you see the evidence for it that they produced more planes at the end of the war, more fighters than they did at any point during the war, um, was absolutely mind blowing to me. Now, the thing that did cripple Germany towards the end of the war was, was fuel. Yeah. Right. And so those were the sort of things that, that, that we could have focused on and we did start to focus on towards the end of the war. I, I mean, even during the Battle of the Bulge. You know, the, the tanks that the Germans had, these huge King Tiger tanks, ran out of fuel. They mm -hmm. just, their, their supply lines were stretched too thin, and they just frankly didn't have the amount that they needed to fund that big push, mm -hmm. you know. 
And that's why they were striving to get to our stores of gasoline, um, you know, along the way towards Antwerp and everything. So, um, all right, well, so let's go ahead and continue here. Um, here, Alan's going to pick right up where we left off. And he has a few words talking about this new wonder weapon that he witnessed. Yeah, they couldn't teach anybody to fly the ME-262, which was a, a wonderful airplane, 100 miles faster than the P-51. And it was uh, fortunate for us that they didn't because it would have devastated the uh, bomber train. Yeah, so the, the ME-262 that uh, Alan's referring to, for those who may not know, was the first truly operational jet fighter uh, the world had ever seen. And it was just barely, it, w- it was subsonic, but just barely. In fact, um, Jager, Chuck Yeager gets credit for uh, the first man to break the sound barrier, but there's a lot of credible stories from ME-262 pilots who, evading uh, combat in a dive, uh, broke the sound barrier. And, and they probably did, but it, it, it wasn't in a setting that it could be recorded or whatnot. The plane was absolutely amazing, but it was definitely too little too late. And like Alan said, at the end of the day, um, the, 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 the majesty of the machines pale in comparison to the humans that fly them and are trained to fly them properly. And they didn't have that. They had the machines, they didn't have the people, they didn't have the fuel. Yeah, I think even, you know, they talk about how difficult it was because they're so fast to to shoot these jets down. And, you know, Alan mentions it in in the clip coming up here, I think that, you know, one of the guys in his group got one, you know, actually. Um, But a lot of times our fighter pilots in their P-51s, they'd have to wait until they were ran out of fuel and they were gliding back into land for us to pick them off because they were so fast that it was just, it was, it was not possible for us to get, to make it fair. <laughs> yeah. Know? So we had to be a little unfair <laughs> and, oh, and yeah. tackle them as they were coming in to, to land and, you know, everything. So, and, and we do have uh, interviews of, uh, of pilots who have seen ME-262s and who have shot them down. So for, uh, for, for viewers listening to this, you know, obviously we have a lot of material to share with you. This is our first interview. Um, but I think you'll find those really compelling if you enjoyed this part of this interview. So this concludes the second episode of a four part series on Alan senior, a B 24 waste gunner and European theater of operations. And what you just heard was how he, uh, settled into, being a, uh, a, a combat flight crew member of the, the B-24 bomber named the Bachelor's Delight, actually, which we didn't have a chance to mention earlier in the podcast. And what you're going to hear next in episode three of four is more about the combat missions and the things he experienced in combat over Germany in the waning days of World War II. So please join us for episode three or four. We really think you'll enjoy it. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. Feel free to post your questions and we'll try to answer them in the next series of interviews that we do. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.